So when the bombs were dropped, they were being dropped on Raqqa? In one hour, you cannot count how many of them. Talking with the bomb drop from the plane, the gunshots everywhere, every minute, every day, night and days, in the afternoon. I mean, I always pray that, that the bomb is not hit me with, um, yeah, I mean, this is the war zone. This is, I always pray to God I can, can uh, escape from this, um, from that place sooner. In 2016, 22-year-old February made a decision to move to Syria and join Islamic State, better known as ISIS. But his dreams of going to university and getting a job failed to materialize. And after 11 months inside the caliphate, he escaped back to Indonesia with his family. This is the story of one man who went to join ISIS and who somehow made it home again. For a new narrative and a special mini-series of Southeast Asia Dispatches, I'm Aisha Llewellyn, and this is Road to Raqqa. This is February. He's 25, but he looks a lot younger. He has a round baby face in these Clark Kent style glasses. Throughout our interview, he's sweet and unfailingly polite. Do you want to do the interview in English or Indonesian? Maybe, if you can speak Indonesian. Yeah. Okay, maybe Indonesia or English. We meet in Jakarta, the city in which February was born, in the office of Grang Obro. It's a low squat building painted a sunny yellow in a sleepy street on the outskirts of the city. I actually drive past it the first time because it doesn't look like an office at all. The only thing that tells you that you're in the right place is a tiny red and white Grand Obrol sticker that's pasted on the front gate. The man you hear introducing me to February is Rashid Nurul Hakim, the editor-in-chief of Grand Obrol. It's an online platform for former combatants and people who want to subscribe to radical ideology, like ISIS recruits. It's a place for them to tell their stories and warn others of the dangers of radicalization. Hakim is a former journalist who started Rong Obrol with his brother, Noor Huda Ishmael. It was Noor Huda who set the wheels in motion for me to meet Hakim, and it was also Noor Huda who met February at the border between Syria and Iraq when he escaped from ISIS having seen the atrocities the group meted out to anyone who failed to conform to their vision firsthand, and that included beheadings. When you were living under ISIS in mm. Raqqa, yeah. you saw a beheading. Um, my family saw it. They saw it when it actually happened? After the beheading, the, the body in, in, the, in the clock, in, in, the, in the circle in the, in the city, uh, there is a body and and the head, and the head is uh, separate from the body and got kicked uh, by the children there. But first, a quick aside: Why did I want to interview February, and why did we decide to give a platform to someone who, at the very least, sympathised with radical ideology? 
Many publications won't take interviews with terrorists, criminals, murderers, gang members, or anyone who they think doesn't deserve, in quotation marks, to have their voice heard. Sometimes the worry is that someone might be using the platform to game the system and undermine the horror of what they once did or subscribed to. And I genuinely understand that, and I do think it's a valid point. But it's also a question I put to Hakim, the creator of Rung Obrol, who explains it far better than I ever could. What would you say to people who say that we should not be giving a platform to terrorists or combatants, people who have committed perhaps terrible atrocities in Syria and just the Islamic State? In our cases, uh, the peoples like us in Rung Obrol, in this uh, social enterprise, we always thinking to solve this uh, the the problem solutioning. We we call it problem solutioning because it's not end yet. Uh, that's why we are come across with the credible voices. We need them uh, to actually talk about why they are joined and what happened there and why they live. That's the most important thing. Why they live and what the lesson that they got. So this is important because. Uh, probably because the intentions of the attractions of this particular maybe ISIS now actually uh, defeated, but the narration is always there. It it will be always a new group again, 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 and the attractions is always be there. And so, with all that in mind, back to February and back to the basics. The group who would go on to be known as the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS, was effectively born out of the second US-led invasion of Iraq in 2003. The instability prompted by the war saw old tensions between Iraq's Sunni minority and Shia majority come to a head. In the vacuum of power left by the fall of Saddam Hussein, insurgent groups began to clash throughout the country. One of the most prominent Sunni insurgent groups was the Al-Qaeda-affiliated Jamaat al-Tawhid wal-Jihad, formed in Afghanistan in the late 1990s. It carried out dozens of attacks against Shia groups and the US military, cultivating a reputation for kidnapping civilians and posting beheading videos online. In 2006, the group changed its name to the Islamic State of Iraq. Its influence was somewhat limited at first, but changes across the Arab world presented opportunities for expansion. In late 2010 and into 2011, the Arab Spring swept across the Middle East and North Africa. Starting in Tunisia, the pro-democracy movement gained momentum, sparking similar protests in Egypt. Inspired by what they were seeing in the news, Syrian civilians took to the streets to protest the authoritarian rule of President Bashar al-Assad. Assad, having seen the Arab Spring's effect, acted swiftly and without mercy. Government troops fired into the protesting crowds and countless atrocities were committed against Syrian civilians. It was a disastrous decision. The attempts to quash peaceful protests didn't just backfire. 
they triggered an armed uprising which caught Assad's government by surprise. The Syrian civil war has since become one of the most devastating conflicts of the 21st century. The United Nations estimates that almost 500,000 people have been killed in the war, and a staggering 7.5 million have been displaced. And that war provided an opportunity for militant groups to enter the fray. The Islamic State of Iraq, that had by that time come to be known as ISIS, being one of them. Okay, Fabrice, so I guess the obvious question is, why did you come? Why did you go to Syria? Syria. <clears throat> okay, there are many factors that I want to go to Syria. February breaks down the reasons why he decided to join ISIS into parts, starting with... Maybe 70 or 80% is because of my family, especially my mom. My mom. Throughout our interview, February can't stop talking about his mother. He must mention her about 50 times. And this is something that some people may struggle to identify with, particularly when you hear the full story of what really happened. In February's case, his mother left for Syria in 2015 with 26 other relatives, leaving him alone in the family home in Jakarta. Actually, in February's telling, they left without a word. He just woke up one day and they'd vanished. According to February, this all went down because... At the time, I don't really agree with them about the, about the ISIS idea. So this all seems a little odd. I mean, would you go into an Islamic state just because your mother had done so before you? But that's what February did. And to understand why, we need to look at both the role of the family in Indonesia and also in Islam. In Indonesia, there's a saying, surga di telapak kaki ibu. Actually, it's a translation of the Hadith or the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. According to the Hadith, the Prophet Muhammad, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him, said that your heaven lies under the feet of your mother. Now, there are also other hadith and parts of the Quran that point out that while you should always love, respect and honour your parents, you don't have to slavishly follow them in all parts of life. But still, that concept, heaven lying under the feet of your mother, runs deep in Indonesia, where communality and family is favoured, and where mothers often occupy a kind of most revered status. So with that in mind, I'm not really surprised that February joined ISIS to be with his mother, or that he felt it was in some way his duty to go and be with her. And also, that wasn't the only reason that he went to join ISIS. Uh, the two, about 20% is because I want to get to all the facilities. At the time, my family, um, big family, is in the crisis you know our financial is in problem like uh, one of my family company had bankrupt and my sister uh, had a rare disease it's called it's like a tbc uh, it's like a cancer but it's it's like uh, it's a tbc bone tbc so her neck is there's a hole in her neck so she really needs to get the surgery which is in here really needs a lot of money, really a lot of money. And uh, when they seen on the internet, the propaganda said that uh, we can get um, free 
Although Al-Qaeda had dominated the headlines in the run-up to the US invasion of Iraq, ISIS soon surpassed them, seizing airtime and international front pages. The group had proven themselves experts with a highly effective weapon, and that weapon was social media. It helped spread their message and radicalise their followers. Promises like the one February's family fell for were widely shared online. Another major piece of what America fought for in Iraq was lost today. Islamic militants seized control of Mosul, Iraq's second largest city with one and a half million people. The group had already- ISIS's success had been quick and brutal, taking the world by surprise. At its peak in 2014 to 2015, ISIS controlled a huge swathe of territory in Iraq and Syria. The group had collected millions of dollars selling oil from fields they'd seized. Their victories were hyped on social media, recruiting more young and highly impressionable followers. Videos were produced to legitimize themselves as a functioning state, showing happy families living in blissful contentment. And this is not something that February was immune to. In short, February and his family were dazzled by the propaganda. And yes, there are some who would say, that February was misguided here, or at least extremely naive. Not least because he tells me in the interview how much he was looking forward to the free education. What did you want to study? At the time, I wanted to study about graphic design, or maybe uh, what the computer things. Something. So you thought that you could study graphic design under ISIS? Yeah. Maybe anything, anything in the in the university. At least I can go to college. Did you really believe that they had colleges in Syria? February claims he did, but spoiler alert here, his plans for higher education under ISIS didn't exactly pan out. ISIS propaganda, like the kind February saw, was all just window dressing. And at its heart, ISIS remained a cult-like terror group, as brutal as it was fundamentalist. Human rights monitors accused the group of committing war crimes, ranging from mass executions to ethnic cleansing of religious and ethnic minorities. The group took it up a notch again with the bloody executions of kidnapped Westerners, including American journalists James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, which they filmed and posted online. Now, the subject of James Foley and the beheading videos is the only point of the interview where February and I almost get into an argument. This was in 2016, and so you're saying that you saw the propaganda online about infrastructure and going to college and medical health. Yeah. But you must also have seen the videos and the violence that ISIS were also putting out at the same time. I mean, for example, in 2014 is when they released the video of the beheading of James Foley. No, no, I don't, I don't really see this video. I only see the good things about the ISIS, about the infrastructure. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, secular, media secular, banyak yang bilang, ISIS is not good, not good. But I, my perspective is only in the uh, ISIS media. ISIS is good. I, I, apa? memaksa memaksa diri saya untuk percaya dengan propaganda itu karena tekanan dari uh, keluarga 
because my mom because I always thought about my mom I need to convince myself this that's the truth I don't see about the other media about the uh, ISIS killing people everything I only see the good things about that I understand that but if I'm honest with you February I find it a little bit difficult to believe that you didn't see the other side of the propaganda because for example the beheading videos mm. were made by ISIS yeah right so the kind of chat rooms or the kind of websites that you were looking at must also have had those videos and that kind of propaganda yeah. about this is what happens to infidels mm. this is a, you know the war of the west yeah. Okay. So you must have seen it, and you must have known. I've seen it uh, around maybe after I go to Turkey, and in Syria, few Muhajirin show to me. But I always thought that, well, okay, maybe that they they did that. But I only want to meet my mom and live as civilians to go to get a job because I thought that there's a different area that. Which is this is the civilians area, this is the war area that they kill people and everything, but I don't really care about that. I only want to live as a civilians and want to uh, live with my family again, with my mom especially. It's like that. You know, uh, that, that kind of perspective, it's really hard. That make me what, bl not blind. I don't care about that. You didn't care hmm. about the violence yes, yes, at the time. So you did know about it, but you just chose to ignore it. Yes. Did you hate Christians at that time, or Buddhists, or anybody who you thought was not a good Muslim? Well, at the time, I was always I openly thought that well, this is the right thing. They they, but um, about the other religion, I don't really see that. Um, what else to say? You know, like I, I, I said before. Um, okay, at the time I, I thought that the religion is not good. So if you saw a video of say a beheading, say James Foley, because James Foley was the first one that started, James Foley, James Foley, who started a series of, of videos. I can show you the video if you want. Would you like to see it? Oh, who is he? So James Foley was an American journalist who was captured by ISIS and beheaded in the desert on camera. Mm -hmm. uh, and then after that, uh, they had a number of other prisoners who they beheaded every few mm -hmm. months mm -hmm. uh, and released the videos. Yeah. Would you like to see it? You must, it, you've probably seen it before. I won't show you the beheading. But I'm just going to show the video to you and ask you if you've seen it. If you saw this video before you went. One might say that it was distasteful for me to show the video to February, even if it was the edited version. But to be honest, I was getting pretty fed up with him claiming that he'd never seen the dark side of ISIS's propaganda machine, or that he hadn't seen any beheading videos, which started to be released in 2014, until he got to Syria in 2016. All of this just sounded like a barefaced lie. So I asked if he wanted to see the video of James Foley, first of all to check if he actually had never seen it, and also to confront him about the violence of ISIS, 
Now, I'm not going to play the audio of the video, but I am going to play you February's reaction to it. Because in my opinion, he says so much by saying so little. When we watch it, he asks me only two questions. Is there a full screen? Can I turn the video to full screen? And then we get to the part with James Foley, kneeling in the sand, his hands cuffed behind his back, wearing an orange jumpsuit. And he starts to say his final words. He says, I call on my brother John, who's a member of the US Air Force. And February asks me, Let's be think about his what you were doing. That picture is his brother? It's the only question February asks me about the actual video. He looks genuinely shaken. The part that hits home is that James Foley had a brother, that he too had a family. But still, we argue. So you had not seen that video before? Never. I find that a little hard to believe, February, but if you say... I never saw that video. And we argue. Okay, yeah. if you say you've never seen that video, I mean, it was on the front page of every newspaper. It was headlining every TV channel in 2014. Well, in 2014, I don't see that media. I only care in 2016. And we argue some more. I find it very hard to believe that February, but if you that, if you say that, then that's that, then then okay. Um, it was such a big scandal when it came out. People were outraged. It was it was all over the the media. So uh, I find it hard to believe that you missed it. My whole point in pushing February about the videos was not to bully him or embarrass him but simply as a kind of litmus test to get a sense of his commitment to ISIS ideology or, in the very least, how much he subscribed to ISIS ideology. In Indonesia, ISIS never really became that popular across the archipelago, at least not compared to other local terrorist groups like Jamaat Islamiyah, which was responsible for the Bali bombings that killed 202 people. In 2017, BNPT Indonesia's counter-terrorism agency, reported that around 1,321 Indonesians were thought to have joined ISIS. Some had been killed, some were stopped and returned to Indonesia before they even got to Syria, and some, like February, returned of their own accord. To find out about the ideology of ISIS and why it clashes with the ideology of more homegrown terrorist groups, I talked to Fahirin, a former member of Jamaat Islamiyah, I meet Fahirin in Jakarta, in a deserted restaurant on the top floor of a mall on Jalan Cikini. It's his choice because he likes the short rib soup, and he orders orange juice and cold sweet tea, which he mixes together in one glass. He's 54 now, and has a long white beard, and walks with a slight limp from a war wound he got years ago. He says he's getting old and that he has grandchildren now. But from 1987 to 1991, he trained in Afghanistan with Al-Qaeda, alongside Osama bin Laden. Fahirin says that in person, bin Laden was not as tall as he looked on TV, and actually a bit scrawny. He also says he didn't talk much and was kind of shy. Upon his return, Fahirin became an explosives and demolition expert for Jamaat Islamiyah, rising to the rank of something equivalent to a colonel. Fahirin was active in Jamaat Islamiyah for years. He served two terms in jail for it, actually, 
once for running guns and ammunition into Poso in Sulawesi and for procuring ingredients to make explosives, and the other time for an armed attack against Christian troops, also in Sulawesi. Farian was pretty sniffy about ISIS, describing their leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, as Ngachalas, which in Indonesian translates to something like untrustworthy, or maybe a bit of a charlatan. Some of the other, Ngachalas. He talks about his time with Jamai Islamia with some affection and talks about ISIS with disdain. To understand one of the main differences between the two groups, we need to go back to the issue of establishing a caliphate, which is essentially an area which operates under Sharia law or an Islamic state. All Muslim terrorist groups have this ideology in some form. The end goal, or the dream, is that countries like Indonesia, and then gradually the whole world, will one day become a Muslim caliphate. But groups like Al-Qaeda and Jamaat Islamiyah were never too fussed about when this would actually happen. As Fahirin prosaically points out, with the rather weary air of a former combatant who's seen it all, a caliphate cannot be forced. Groups like Jamai Islamia were aware that establishing a true Islamic state would take time and that it was part of the long game. In contrast, ISIS made their name by not only stating their desire to establish a caliphate, but by also actually doing it in Syria in 2014. And this, for many recruits, was part of the appeal. ISIS claimed that they walked the walk, where other groups just talked about it. But Fahirin says that this was all nonsense on ISIS's part. As he puts it, it was never about a caliphate. They just wanted to take over, to just claim everything. He paints a picture of ISIS as power-hungry and bloodthirsty, keen on carnage but far removed from the original principles of jihad. As he says, jihad is inside ourselves, and if we are patient, then it will come. That's why Al-Qaeda were restrained, even though we were always at war for jihad. As well as quibbling about the finer points of terrorist theory and etiquette, Fahirin also points out that ISIS were in some ways victims of their own success. They got too famous too fast, which made some potential recruits nervous. They were immediately recognised in Indonesia as a threat, he says, so it was easy to catch them. As he talks, I get the sense that Farahin thinks that ISIS are a bunch of amateurs, particularly when he points out how many members, or potential members, were arrested before they even got to Syria. They did nothing, and they still got arrested, he says, with some relish. But February, at least, in part bucked the trend of radicalised Indonesians who preferred a more old-school kind of terrorism like Jamaat Islamia. And instead, February put all his chips on joining ISIS. Often, we tend to think that people join terrorist groups simply because they believe wholeheartedly in or are brainwashed by the ideology. But while that's part of the story, it's often not the primary motivation. It doesn't happen in some kind of ultra-religious vacuum. And no one just wakes up one day and joins a terrorist group. February is one such example of this. And this is another huge part of radicalization, 
and a recurrent theme from all the interviews I've done with former terrorists. Radicalization through isolation. Now, you may remember that February's family left without telling him. He had no job to speak of, and he spent his days in isolation. In his own words, he was depressed. Imagine him living in a room on his own. He spends more and more time online where he's groomed by ISIS ideology. And I began to search on the media, like uh, ISIS media. I began to search and I seen that the facilities, the infrastructure is really good there, about the school, about the uh, hospital, everything. It's in the video is really good. The speeches he listens to seduce him into thinking that this is a good idea. And then, as he's sitting alone in his room, isolated, cornered, bored, and missing his mother, he gets what he sees as a lucky break. There's uh, my uh, colleague, not colleague, friends of mine. Uh, he is a former employee in my uncle's uh, company, which uh, which bankrupt. Yes, and they and he asked me to go to Syria, and he. Uh, give me the tickets, uh, the visas and everything to go to Turkey. The financial hit taken by his family when their business went bust hasn't just affected them. It's also hit their former employees. And one of those employees decides that he also wants to go to Syria. And he asks February to go with him. By this point, it's August 2016. And the former employee is willing to deal with everything if February agrees to it. All he has to do is say yes. I said yes. I want to go to Syria better than here. I do nothing here. I, can, I cannot do anything here. And then there's a problem. The former employee is married with children and it's more difficult for them to cross over into Syria as a family. So, as February is single, he goes first. And it starts by getting on a bus to Hatay, a province in Turkey that borders Syria. A lot of people, maybe a lot of around fifty people there from around the world, but mostly from Europe. And then, yeah, I I came to the bus. I go to the, by the bus, all the way to the border. When the bus stopped, did it say like this is the ISIS bus? Like no. get on if you want to no. join ISIS. No. How did you know it was the right bus? Because there's some kind of in English, you know, panitia. Mm-hmm. Panitia, there's. Uh, a people, a person, a people who said, just go with the bus. Right, okay. What February perhaps hadn't realised is that as horrific reports of ISIS atrocities spread, the pressure on other governments to act had begun to build. By the time he gets to Syria, things are rapidly going downhill for the group. Last night, on my orders, America's armed forces began strikes against ISIL targets in Syria. Today, the American people give thanks for the extraordinary... The US military began attacking ISIS targets in Syria and Iraq in September 2014. The organization was forced to retreat further and further, withdrawing into Raqqa, the capital of their so-called caliphate, which by 2016 was far from glorious. In fact... It was technically at war on dozens of fronts. As well as battling other armed groups in Syria, ISIS was being bombarded from the air by the US military and engaged on the ground by Kurdish troops. 
They were also targets of military powers, including Russia, Iran and Lebanon, who were all supporting allies of the Syrian government. In the end, the ISIS caliphate's spectacular rise from obscurity into the international headlines was effectively wiped out in less than two decades. And this was the world that February entered into in 2016. Next time on Road to Raqqa. We went from running an online shop to running through the mountains, hiding from Turkish soldiers, right? Yeah, yeah. In the mountain, and I, talk, I always thought that maybe this is it, I will die, I will die, I will die. Maybe the Turkish army will shoot me. Thank you.